Hello, and welcome back to Fizzy Kids, the podcast. I am your host, Ali Fanshaw, and this is the show where we talk about all those things that make our kids fizzy and fabulous. Welcome to our final show of season two of Fizzy Kids, the podcast. We have been talking about fizzy kids and their folk and meeting people with a range of experiences of supporting fizzy kids. I have learnt so much talking to our guests this season. We've had parents who have been honest about their parenting journey with fizzy kids, parent coaches who describe themselves as having come from the dark side of parenting, siblings of fizzy kids, teachers and sports coaches too. It's been the most incredible range of people on the show and I think just sitting back and listening and reflecting on what I have heard and learned this season is that so many of our kids, despite their challenges and needs every day, just want to be treated like everyone else and just need a little bit of extra support to help them reach their potential sometimes. But I realised after listening to all of these people that there was one side of the story that we had not yet heard from, and that is from the perspective of the child. So this week I am introducing you to Amy. So this week I'm introducing you to Amy. Amy is an ecologist with a passion for wildlife conservation, having spent time across the world volunteering on projects after completing her degree. She also just happens to have secondary dystonia, which she describes as cerebral palsy without the brain damage. But as you can probably tell, she hasn't let that stand in her way. For the rest of the day after Amy's interview, I found myself reflecting on her honest words. She's an amazing lady. She talks about the relationship with her family, her hopes for her future, and shares some amazing messages for parents and carers of fizzy kids about what's important to them growing up. And actually, it's got very little to do with trying to fix all your child's additional challenges in life before they reach 18, and much more to do with talking, growing together as a family, and supporting the day-to-day ups and downs that any child would have. So grab a cuppa, sit back, and enjoy the show, because this one is a real treat. Hi, Amy. It is so lovely to have you on with us today. Thank you for joining us. Um, I always like to let our guests introduce themselves. So perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit more about you and what you're up to right now. Hi, I'm Amy. Um, I'm 26 years old. Um, I I finished my master's degree last year, so I know you before last um, I currently work as an assistant oncologist for an environmental consultancy firm, um, and I have secondary dystonia. Thank you. Um, so for a start, just the fact that you are an ecologist excites me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a chartered environmentalist, so you know that that is just exciting in itself. So I want to hear more about your work. Um, but would you mind just explaining a little bit more to the listeners, Amy, about what secondary dystonia is and how it's affected you and your life to date? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, not many people have heard of secondary dystonia. To be honest, I hadn't until I was diagnosed with it. Um, so secondary dystonia <clears throat> is presents in a similar way to cerebral palsy. 
Um, but for um, a diagnosis of cerebral palsy, you have to have brain damage, and I don't have any brain damage. So it's a neurological disorder, um, and nine was due to birth hypoxia. So I wasn't breathing when I was born. Um, and so it affects all my muscles, all my limbs. Um, I have quite high fatigue. Um, I have fairly poor hand function. Um, <clears throat> and I have a tremor, so my muscles and my body move all the time, um, which can, which hence the high fatigue. Um, and actually the only time I'm ever still is when I'm in a really, really deep sleep, which was really, really annoying as a child, because I mean, I'm sure you know, kind of as a child, if you don't have to want to go somewhere, you'll try and pretend to be asleep. It never worked for me because I, I was moving. So my parents always knew I was awake. It was really annoying. Um, but yes, yeah, so, um, so up until I was about 10, um, I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And then I had an MRI scan and found that I had no brain damage, so it couldn't be that. Um, and I was only actually diagnosed with dystonia five years ago. So for 10 plus years, I had an undiagnosed neurological condition, which was kind of interesting to explain. <laughs> um, and interesting when I had to fill in like medical forms or forms for university or anything like that. I always came back and it was always a question of, can you explain that? What? what? <laughs> so um, I just want to say firstly to the listeners, because they don't have the pleasure of seeing you. That's just <laughs> me on our Squadcast platform. Um, Amy is saying all of this with the most amazing smile on her face. <laughs> and um, so I think that that's the first thing to say. That is the first thing that I notice about you, Amy, is just that huge smile. And um, I guess secondly, that that's thank you for sharing that because I think for a lot of parents who have kids with additional or special needs many of them may go through a period of time when they just don't know exactly what is the root cause of their child's struggles and that is incredibly difficult right so so would you because a lot of the listeners that we have Amy are parents would you be able to maybe talk at all about what you think your parents went through in that period of time when it wasn't known what your struggles were relating to and how that affected them? Yeah, um, I think what I mean, first thing to say is I'm an only child. So there's only the three of us. So we have a really, really close relationship. Um, and I think kind of having all the medical appointments I did, all kind of I had several surgeries and kind of investigative scans and tests and everything. First thing I will say is I think that's actually made us closer in a slightly kind of odd way because we've we've had to we've we've kind of had to stick together. Um so that's the first thing I think I'll say. Um and I think kind of from the parents' side, I think 
I know my my dad definitely felt guilty for a number of years. Um, he doesn't now. And you know, I, of course, I never blamed him at all. But I think he felt quite guilty for a number of years. Um, and I think, yeah, I, th- I think it was difficult for my parents. Um, because kind of we'd have various tests and they were inconclusive or they'd say, okay, try this medication. If that works, great, you have this diagnosis. If it doesn't, it's like to drawing board. And so a lot of the time it was like to drawing board. Um, <clears throat> and I think I was struggling with it quite a lot. And I think it was harder for my parents to see me struggle. Um, and so, yes, as I say, kind of did various tests. And, and then when I was about 12, um, kind of the doctors sort of decided to just stop kind of investigating for a few years and instead decided to treat my symptoms rather than try and find out what the cause was. Um, and so they're kind of treating their symptoms without kind of four or five years um, till I was 16. And then I decided at 16, I'd gone kind of through so many tests and I'd gone through a, a surgery that hadn't worked. And so I'd have a second surgery to remedy that. And I was 16, I was trying to do the GCSEs. I was a teenager. <laughs> And so I actually decided at 16, actually, I've cut, I want to break from this. I've kind of, I've, I've had enough. I can manage it with my GT and on my own and with my parents. So let's have a break for a few years. And I was lucky that my symptoms were manageable enough that I could do that. So for about nine, ten years, I didn't go back to the hospital. And it was only... Yeah, that two years ago, that I, two, three years ago, I decided actually, no, I'd like to do some more tests. I'd like to try and figure out what this is. Um, and kind of that was partly because I was getting more spasms, I was get, getting more painful spasms. So I wanted to kind of do a bit more investigation and kind of see if there was any further medication I could go on to. Um, but also the other reason was kind of, as I said, I'm 26 now, and so I'm beginning to think about that in a few years I'd like to potentially start a family. And because I didn't have a diagnosis, I didn't know if it was genetic, if I could potentially pass it on to my children. Um, so again, I kind of, I wanted to investigate it from that side of it as well. Um, yeah, sorry, I kind of started waffling a bit there. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, uh, I think it's the opposite to waffle, Amy. Okay. I think, uh, I think your transparency and honesty is amazing. So firstly, thank you for that, because it's not easy to talk about these things. And I'm, I'm fascinated actually by the point you made about stopping kind of going to see specialists for a while and 
I love the fact that when you decided it was the right time for you as an adult to go and then do more tests and find out more and work with other specialists, that you then took the initiative as a grown-up to go and do that. Because I think quite often parents of fizzy kids and kids with additional and special needs feel like they have to have sorted everything out for their children by the time they're 10. Because otherwise... (laughs) Because otherwise we're ruined, you know, we've ruined their childhood, we've ruined their life. But actually, there might be a message there, I think, from you that says that there might only be so much you can do when your kids are little. And as you say, your your challenges and struggles were manageable on a day-to-day basis. And Um, so maybe that kind of helps you to make that decision. But I I do think there's an important message there, isn't there? That you can't necessarily sort everything out all in one go. Yeah, and I think that sometimes when you're growing up with additional needs or special needs, um, that can overshadow everything else. And so sometimes I think... (laughs) parents because of course they want to help their child as much as they can they want to um give them as much health and and everything but I think sometimes parents can forget that actually it's okay just to let them be a kid it's okay just to let them be a teenager yes thank you thank you for saying that (laughs) I um I I think uh you know if I think about my two kids and they were 26 now and saying that to me, that would be a really, really important message for me to hear. Just let us be kids. You know, I I might have this special need. I might have this emotional need. But actually, a lot of the time, I just want to be me and have fun and eat ice cream and not go to therapist appointments. So there's a really powerful message there, Amy. Um, I just want to go back quickly before we move on to the comment you made about your dad feeling guilty Because again, a lot of our uh, people who listen are parents. And I do think that as parents, you do struggle with guilt, maybe sometimes shame, even if it goes kind of deeper than guilt. And did you, were you able to kind of see how your dad managed those feelings over time? I think as a child, I wasn't aware of it at all. It was only as I started growing up that kind of we were talking about it more um and so I think it was just something that he had to work through and I think I think it's got easier for him as I've got older because I he can I can manage everything a lot more myself and I'm so, so, so much more confident than I used to be. Um, I, I'm, I'm a completely different person to who I, to who I was ten years ago. Um, I mean, if you'd have kind of said to eleven-year-old me that at twenty-six you will have got your undergraduate degree, your master's degree, you'd have travelled around Australia by yourself. You'd have spent three months volunteering in the dawning rainforest and you're now working full time. I would have thought you were completely nuts. I, I just, no. <laughs> um, 
So I think that's that's helped in the long run that dad has has seen how I've grown, how I've grown in confidence, how I can manage it myself now. Um, so it's not kind of on him. And I've of course never it's never entered my head that dad should feel or mum should feel guilty. Um, I think kind of when when we first they first kind of mentioned it, I could understand it. But I was quite surprised, I think, because as I say, it never even entered my head. Yeah, and, and maybe rightly so, because I think there is an element of parents wanting to protect their children, maybe even more so children who have a lot more to think about and a lot more on their plate than your standard kids. Yes. So, yeah. But I think, as you say, that that what's lovely is that, as you say, that you know you you grew together as a family, and actually, as you became more confident and less worried, so almost your parents could become like that too. Yeah, and that I think I know, I'm, I'm so so grateful for my parents. I'll be forever grateful to them, and um, they're amazing. And um, that I think. And also so grateful that it can be so easy, I think, to wrap your child in cotton wool and want to protect them from everything, particularly when your child has is a fizzy kid. Um, and I think that can be so easy to do. And But I'm so grateful that they... <laughs> it's a kind of a... A metaphor, kind of a silly metaphor, that they kind of let me leave the nest and kind of let me go and do these things and find out for myself. Um, and yes, I've kind of I've tried things and they haven't necessarily worked. Um, and I've picked myself up and I've gone with it and I've moved on. And they've been there to catch me if I've needed them, but they still let me go. And so I'm, I'm so grateful that they've done that because that's let me kind of live my life and that I know that they're always there to support me if I need them. I'm just um, choking up a little bit here. <laughs> I'm going to be honest because I think the way you're describing it is incredibly powerful and again, a great message that you, how, however fizzy your kids are, whatever their needs are, that there may well come a time where you do have to let go. And and that's that is a that's a message that is hard for parents to hear, but but important. Yeah, um, Amy. So thank you for sharing about how your your dad was feeling and about how how that kind of came out. Um, I know that you are quite honest about the fact that, like you say, when you look back 10 years, you can't imagine doing and having done what you've done. And, and quite a lot of that has maybe been dealing with those feelings of anxiety and worry that you have had. Would you mind exploring those a little bit more for us? Because Managing big feelings is one thing that we talk about all the time with fizzy kids, that it's just harder to manage 
because of everything they've got going on in their lives. So if you could share a little bit about your journey in dealing with those feelings of anxiety and worry, I know that would be a great help to some of our listeners. Yeah, of course. course. Um, I'll also kind of, after that, I'll talk about um, self-confidence because that was also another massive, massive thing for me. Um, The anxiety, I... I still have anxiety. It's not something that I've just, it's completely gone now. Um, I just, I've learned a lot how to manage it now. Um, And also being more confident, that's definitely reduced my anxiety, that it's still, it's still there. Um, And when I'm really tired or in a lot of pain or something, my anxiety gets a lot worse. so as a child and early teenager, my anxiety was really, really bad. Um, and and it was anxiety about everything. It wasn't kind of a big, just big things I was worried about. It was little things. It was homework. It was friends. It was going to school. It was going kind of to a new place it was everything um and again the parents like have patience of a saint um because they would just talk me through my concerns every day and kind of I'd we kind of have a little bit of an inside joke now in that um I would we talk through my concerns I'd go to bed I'd go to sleep I'd wake up in the morning. First thing I'd say would be, I've been thinking. <laughs> and, and then we'd talk through it again. And then that evening we'd probably talk through the exact same thing. Um, and they just kept talking to me about it and reassuring me. Um, and and I think, and they, they talked to me about my concerns in a very kind of mature way and they never the little dirts they they always gave me kind of um they always kind of reassured me one of the things that really, really worked for me was having an escape route so so for example um if when I was um oh gosh I said that six years ago um, I went, I volunteered in, out in Africa, in Namibia. I volunteered on a wildlife rehabilitation centre. Um, and it was my first time travelling on my own. Kind of, it was <laughs> slightly terrifying. Um, and kind of, I, I got there, I got there, I got on my own, I was fine. And that night I was incredibly homesick. I called my mum in tears. I just couldn't do it. Um, and so one thing my mum said to me was, you, you do know that you don't have to stay the whole time. You can, we can book a flight. You can come home. You can come home early. And as soon as I heard that, I was better because I knew that I could come home. I didn't have to stay there the whole time. Um, and that's still one of my techniques now, that I have that escape route, that nine times out of ten, I don't need it, that the fact I know it's there, 
that really helps. Um, and I think I also can now work through stuff myself. So kind of I can go, okay, I'm worried about this. What specific thing am I worried about? Okay, what's the worst that can happen? Okay, that's not too bad. I can deal with that. <laughs> um, whereas when I was younger, I just knew I was worried. I didn't, I didn't know what it was. I was just really worried. Um, whereas now I can really break it down. Um, and so, so that really, really helped. And also, um, I think also when I was... 10, so I was primary school, so I was year five, so I was 10. Um, I actually, I was so worried about school that I actually refused to go into school. I was, I was, I was terrified. And I remember we had got into the uh, car park to go to school, and I remember just bursting into tears and kind of trying to climb out. <laughs> That the back of the car when they're saying I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, just because I was just so worried. And that had kind of been building up for several years, to be honest, and that was kind of the, the breaking point, I suppose. Um, and so, um, yeah, it took kind of, took a long time to to kind of, to be happy in school and a lot of that was stepping stones so I so I was at uh, mainstream primary school until year six end of year six and then my secondary school I went to stepping stones and that the the small classes the small school the understanding teachers the patients um not that my primary school teachers, well, most of them, um, weren't understanding. I think one of the problems was was that in a class of 30 kids, it's really difficult to take time for just one kid sometimes. And I think it's perhaps a bit easier for kids who are disruptive because the teacher has to deal with the disruptive child because he or she is disrupting the whole class. Whereas I was the kid that would be struggling in the back, not saying a word. And so the teacher didn't notice. And that's not saying they were a bad teacher. It was just the just the situation. Um while I was going to Stepping Stones, it was a lot smaller and slowly I grew I my confidence increased enough that I could then go, actually, I need help. Can you help me? I need some more time. That, which, as a younger, I just, I didn't have that confidence. Um, and so that kind of leads on with confidence and self-esteem, which was, I had, well, practically zero. Um, so, and like when I used to go out with my parents, um, I would talk through them, and I used to have I, um, for everyone who can't see me, and um, I used to have long hair, I used to have like um, below my shoulder length hair, and I now have a pixie cut, um, and 
I used to hide behind my hair. And so I kind of use it as a bit of a curtain. And that with really short hair, I definitely can't do that now. Um, so not only kind of has my confidence grown over the years, actually kind of having my hair cut short, um, that helped me because I didn't, I couldn't hide behind it anymore. Um, although having my hair cut short wasn't exactly planned. <laughs> um, I had, when I was 15, I had surgery. And so I had to have all my hair shaved off. Um, and it grew back and I really liked it short. So I kept it short. Well, there's so much in what you've just said, Amy. Um, I don't know where to start to, to unpick it. Um, I think the the two things that, that stand out for me there. So firstly, when you were talking about your anxiety, and I, I think that was, again, such an important message that a lot of the time it's time, time and patience. Absolutely. And actually, you know, having that relationship with your parents who were able to talk through your worries to some degree reassure you, but actually just to talk it through sometimes seemed to be the way that helped you. And then as you grew older, almost turning what you'd learned in your childhood through talking through those worries into tools that help you personally. So that escape route you talk about. And actually, do you know, I think that's a great message for anybody. (laughs) You know, we always have a choice, right? It's easy to feel like you're stuck and you don't have a choice. But actually, what you're saying and what helps you deal personally with your anxiety is you do. You always have a choice. There's always a way out of things. Yeah, and I think when you're really concerned about something, you can't see that. You're just saying, no, I have to do this. I can't, and but I have to, and it just turns into a really vicious cycle. Yes, yeah, and you've learned over the years to kind of manage that cycle, haven't you? And I think the other thing, and we were going to come on to this anyway, that you've started to talk about is the importance of being in the right school environment. And for so many of our listeners and subscribers to Fizzy Kids who are struggling with their kids in the school environment, it it can really make or break the child. Would you agree, Amy? Definitely. Yeah. And and I think... um, you know, what you dealt with in primary, being the quiet one at the back of the class struggling, that will actually be familiar to many parents who have kids with anxiety. Quite often they can be the quiet ones at the back. Um, And how did it, I mean, so this this can sometimes be a bit stigmatized, but what were your thoughts in terms of moving from mainstream into a specialist school that had specialist provision? Because sometimes I think parents and children worry about that move. But actually, what you're saying is that it was right for you. It helped you. And ultimately, it set you on the path to being an ecologist now with a master's degree yeah. around the world. So, you know, let's let's just stop that stigma right here and now. And uh, yeah, I mean, what, what are your thoughts around that, Amy? Yeah, I, I think there is, there can be that stigma there. That's, I think some parents can perhaps feel that they've maybe failed their child 
if they go in, if they need to go to a special school. Um, that uh, actually, kind of for me, it was a hundred percent the right move. I needed it. It was kind of exactly what I needed. Um, and so I think it's whatever is right for your child. And some people may not understand that friends, family, they may not understand that at first. Um, because I know that kind of a couple of, of like family acquaintances didn't, didn't understand why my parents were sending me to Stepping Stones. And I think that judgment is also really difficult. Um, but actually kind of once they saw that I flourished in that environment, they realised actually, yeah, that was the right decision. Um, I mean, kind of when, when I started Stepping Stones, it was really, really tiny. Um, <laughs> you know, I was the fifth student. There were five of us in the school. Um, so that that was definitely a, a shift. That was, for me, kind of my new school was the a fifth of the size of my class at final school. Um, so that took a bit of an adjustment. Um, and actually, kind of, again, when I left Stepping Stones, I was ready to move on. I was, I didn't need to stay there any longer. Um, but again, moving from Stepping Stones to college, again, that was, a, I do think that was still a bigger step for me than perhaps others who were in mainstream, just purely from the size of it. So going from the, at the time I left, I think there were 16 students, I think. And then the class that I went, uh, sorry, my course was two, three times that size. Um, and like the campus was huge, kind of that took a lot of adjusting. But Stepping Stones had given me the confidence to adjust to that, to adapt to yeah, to adjust to that and enjoy it. Um, yes, I still had my concerns. Yes, I still had to manage my tiredness, my expectations of myself, I think. But Stepping Stones have given me the tools and the confidence to do that. And I think that's what's important. Um, I th absolutely agree, Amy, and I'm just delighted that you and your family, you found the right environment. And just to finish on, because sometimes when you're right in the thick of it as a parent, it can be hard to imagine what life's going to look like for your kids in the future, and you yeah. do worry. But just to give us all great inspiration, <laughs> tell us, what do you think, as a final thing, what do you think is your greatest achievement to date? Can I say a couple? <laughs> Absolutely. So I went to, uh, volunteered in Borneo as a research assistant for three months. And that was by far the longest I had been away from home ever. Um, and so, and also I, I didn't know if physically I would be able to manage the 
the hot, the hot, humid environments, the work I had to do. Um, but I, I'm the kind of person now that will grab the challenge with two hands and just go for it. Um, and so I, I went for it and I managed all three months, which looking back is kind of insane. Um, but it was one of those things that before I went, I was freaking out slightly, to say, <laughs> to say the least. And it was one of those things that I knew if I didn't go, if I didn't give it a go, I would have regretted it because I would have said, well, what if I just, what if I tried? Okay, it may not have worked. It, it did. It may not have done that. I tried. I'd given it a shot. Um, so that, and I think, I think also for me, kind of another achievement, I think, is actually holding down a full-time job because when I was 10, 11, 12, I mean, actually my mum said this to me the other day, she didn't think I'd be able to just purely from my anxiety and my fatigue was so much worse than it is now. And that's not because, and it hasn't got, better because my disability has magically got better it's because I'm able to manage it much better myself even if that means that I have to spend a day in bed um just recharging everything I like I know when I need to do that and I don't feel guilty I don't feel weak for needing to do that I know that's just what I need to do um and so to the other I hold down a full-time job in a large company um just like everyone else and to be able to do that I think is probably one of my greatest achievements I think we would all agree with you Amy And, um, you know, it's just lovely to hear the journey that you've been on and to have got where you've got to for anybody would be fantastic, Uh, let alone somebody who has been through a lot more of a challenging childhood. So, Amy, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I'm going to risk upsetting the rest of my interviewees from this season to say that you were my favourite interviewee for this season, so thank you. And um, we hope you have a great rest of your year and that um, you do everything, keep doing everything that you want to do in life. Thank you. Thank you. And so we reach the end of season two. I have loved it and I hope you've enjoyed it too. Fizzy Kids is on a huge journey right now and we love the fact that our tribe and community is growing. We really hope to record further podcast seasons in the future. But in the meantime, don't be shy. Come and find us and introduce yourself to us on Instagram or Facebook. Our handle is at the Fizzy Kids or find out more about what we're doing and how we might be able to help at fizzykids.co.uk where you can sign up for our newsletter and access free downloads. We are just a bunch of exhausted but hopeful parents and carers on a quest to transform our parenting language and approach as we relearn to be the parents our fizzy kids need us to be. 
Until then, take care and keep defizzing that fizz.